0: Yeah, so it was. It was just. It was really weird. I was in this in this hotel, and um, you know, I, I just could not get the blood off my hands.
1: Oh, uh, I hate when that happens.
0: As much as I, str- you know, I scrubbed and I scrubbed, and it was so bad because I had to get to the speed.
1: Wait, right. wait, oh, oh, oh hey, oh, oh, we're we're recording. Oh, oh you should oh. probably
0: stop. Oh crap. Okay, so uh, greetings, dear listeners. This is another edition of the Remnant Podcast. I'm Jonah Goldberg. I'm here in the studio with uh, the inestimable, or maybe estimable. Uh, Jack Butler, and, I can
1: I can be estimated.
0: <laughs> and uh, this week's episode is brought to you by uh, Donors Trust. Uh, Donors Trust is your charitable giving partner, offering donor advised funds, philanthropic advice, and legacy protection. Learn more about how to how Donors Trust can help you advance liberty later in the show. We're also brought to you by Zip Recruiter, which you've heard about much, and we'll tell you more about again a little later on. So, if you guys can't tell, I am, um, metaphysically exhausted. Um, I am, I literally, literally, not figuratively, uh, just drove here, uh, from Ohio and came straight to the studio. I am saturated and, uh what we might call manbrosia <laughs> um, rank punditry and yeah and since I'm full of rankness and cigar smoke and whatnot, uh, we'll probably start with some rank punditry um, I did I do want to say first off we'll come back to this because I want to talk about it a little more but uh, I had a great time at Cedarville University in Cedarville Ohio and um, my people your people well so it's it's it was fascinating I stayed in Yellow Springs at a really lovely inn, yeah, Mills something inn, and um, apparently, as you pointed out to me, Yellow Springs is kind of this bizarre brigadoon of hippie liberalism in the middle of southern Ohio. Uh-huh. And I actually was so fascinated by how liberal it is because Cedarville, which is right next door, is like a dry county. Cedarville is a Bible school. They have... Uh, they have... Uh, uh, what do you call it for church services? If you meet, meet, you wouldn't call church services? Uh, chapel. Chapel, that's what I'm thinking. See, this is how good my brain is working. Uh-huh. And uh, they have chapel every day for the entire school. And it's um, deeply culturally conservative. And the joke has been for generations how the two towns basically, they're both in the same county, cancel out each other's votes.
1: Oh. <laughs>
0: and... Um, and it's fascinating. The history of it goes back because, uh, Yellow Springs is where Antioch College is. Uh huh. Antioch College, as you know, is, first of all, it's not doing well. Uh, but second of all, it's like one of, it's been one of the most famously left-wing schools, you know, since the Pleistocene. Yeah. But the town has this, like, rich history. Like, the Wikipedia page alone was really interesting. You <laughs> go back to, like, the, the McCarthy era. It was, like, that was, it was closely monitored by the feds because if it's, Uh, Purported sympathies for communism. Yeah, and Horace Mann taught at the school there at some point. It was the, it was like a had a whole weird sort of not Shaker, but some kind of weird sort of history to it. And it's just this odd island of liberalism. And so, like, I often tell these jokes about like if you when I'm trying to illustrate this point in my speech about how if you took a baby from today and you sent it back to Viking times, it would grow up to be a Viking. And if you took a baby from Viking times and you sent it to today, I usually use like the Upper West Side of Manhattan or New Rochelle to say it would grow up to be a, you know, an orthodontist or something like that. Mm -hmm. Instead, for the Cedarville audience, I said, if you, you know, took a baby from Yellow Springs and sent it back to the Viking era, it would pillage the English countryside. And if you took a Viking baby from a thousand years ago and you transported it to Yellow Springs, it would grow up to, you know... Sell hemp sandals on eBay, (laughs) 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 and the audience loved it. Um, And uh, but I think it's really cool, and now it makes sense. That's near where Dave Chappelle lives. Uh huh. And you always wonder how, when you hear David Chappelle lives on a farm in rural Ohio, you kind of figure out how does that how does that work? And it turns out he kind of he lives basically near the Tacoma Park or or you know uh, Portland of Ohio.
1: Yeah. Although I. I it's possible that Athens, Ohio might might contest that designation. It's this, another similar, although that that's got its own county, Athens County, that's consistently one of the bluest uh, dots on the Ohio electoral map. I see. Um, but Rod Sterling is also Rod Sterling is an alumnus of Antioch College. Is so, really so another a famously liberal guy who came out of this bizarre yet. Quirky and lovely anomaly. I believe, and I, I, I
0: will really be really embarrassed if I get this wrong, but I, I could swear that my f- friend Bill Schultz, longtime Washington editor of Reader's Digest, and father of one of my closest friends, Nick Schultz, went to Antioch College and was a member of YAF there, um, hmm. which back in those days was fighting words. And um, <laughs> but anyway, so it was a really nice time, really great bunch of people. Um, it was a weird day for me because I drove out there because I just couldn't do another. Playing strands and automobiles kind of day, and I figured I'd just stick with automobiles. And I get a text message from my wife about ten AM to say that her boss, Nikki Haley, is resigning from the Trump administration. And I think I'm gonna do my column about this. But all of a sudden it was a really kind of funny sort of little Washington kind of story in the sense that my phone just starts blowing up with people text messaging me <laughs> and emailing me, wanting to know what's the real story, what's going on, and you know, why is she doing this? And you know, what do you know? And not only because I was driving, um, but also because I really didn't know very much. I didn't have much to tell people. You know, my mom calls me to tell me at 1025 as if I wouldn't have gotten news already about it. And so I, I, I'm not going to divulge any insidery information in part because I really don't have very much. I think this is – it's a lot like Arthur Brooks's resignation from the American Enterprise Institute. It's the, the, one of these rare instances where the cover story – is largely the story, mm-hmm. um, but I will say, and I say this purely in the in rank punditry mode, and not trying to reveal any sources, that this is another great example. You know how they have that expression: "It's better to be lucky than to be smart." Uh, Nikki Haley is kind of both. She, first of all, she is. You know, I was listening to a lot of the commentary um, on the radio on the way out. Everyone's talking about how she's like one of the most popular people in the. Administration, or one of the most popular Republican women in America, or one of the one of this, she I think objectively is probably right now the most popular politician in America, and uh, because she has really high approval ratings among Republicans, but she also has shockingly high approval ratings among independents and Democrats, and the fact that she could pull that off while being a member of the Trump administration is really a remarkable thing. And I think some of it has to do with the fact that she was in New York so that she was out of the D.C. Uh, uh, shark-infested chummed waters of all of that.
1: Uh, I think, I want to I propose the crab bucket as the better aquatic analogy. Crab
0: bucket works. So that cra- for those who don't know, you know, uh, crabs are Notorious that if one crab looks like he's about to escape from the trap, the other crabs pull it down. Yeah, that feels more apt to me. Yeah, so she was outside of the Washington crab bucket. And, but unlike being, say, ambassador to China or something like that, she was still in the really at the heart of the major of the national media. New York is not outside of that loop. And she had a profile from her job that allowed her to do things on her own, um, or independently of the messaging from the White House that was uniquely beneficial to her. It also allowed her to stay out of a lot of the domestic controversies, which is where most of the controversies are these days. And um, as my brain starts to fall down, uh, she managed better than any other member of the administration to navigate the, the countless rhetorical traps of working for Donald Trump. You know, she has, I I would say Nikki Haley has the best political timing of anybody in the business today. She got out of South Carolina on a really high note. They had the church shooting, they had the Confederate flag stuff, and she got out while the state was still doing really well, took this job that people had low expectations or were surprised that she was going to take. She never had to fully recant her sort of never-Trumpism stuff when she was with Rubio, And whenever there were controversies that seemed like they might pull her down into the crab bucket, she managed to sort of unlock the pincers of the crab and break free. And it's funny, as I go across the country, I tell people my wife is Nikki Haley's chief speechwriter, and they tell me how much they love her. And they say, I loved it how she pushed back on Trump with that whole I don't get confused thing. And I sometimes don't bother to tell them that that wasn't about Trump. That was a, a... Ill-advised comment from Larry Kudlow. Mm-hmm. But what was brilliant about way Nikki handled that was she had good timing. She did not wait for like the second day's story in the New York Times to push back on it anonymously. She didn't wait to push back it on the rep push back on it on the record within minutes or like hours at the most. She issued her statement about how she doesn't get confused. And same thing with the anonymous controversy where she not only powerfully denied that it was her and I don't think I'm fairly confident it wasn't her Um, that's just what you would say yeah that's true although when that thing happened you know I sent an email to my wife and I said did you write this and she said you're the second person to ask me that I was like that's not responsive (laughs) (laughs) Um, but my wife didn't write it Um, and uh, but she also managed to sort of reassert her independence and so this timing just On pure punditry is 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 brilliant. If, as is commonly assumed, the Republicans at least get shellacked in the House, right in the midterms. I don't think they're going to in the Senate right now, at least. If she announced her retirement after that, it would look like you know, oh, rats sink, you know, leaving the you know sinking ship kind of thing, and she would get a lot of grief for, you know, for bailing. But by doing this and then sticking, doing it this way and getting the send off from the White House. She's entirely sort of above the fray, has no ownership of any of that stuff, and she is man. You know, there's there's this pipe dream of sort of the Bill Crystal crowd um, that she would challenge Donald Trump in 2020. I am certainly not opposed to someone challenging Donald Trump in 2020, but it would need to have some chance of success or at least of fixing the party in a way. Doing it purely as a pyrrhic gesture, I don't think, is a really good idea. And. I really don't want John Kasich to do it because I can't stand the guy. Um, Did you know his father was a mailman? I've heard that. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. Um, I was in a green room a while back, and was it Cory Gardner, the, the Colorado senator? Yes. So he loves to do these interviews in front of his um, family's like, tractor dealership in Colorado or something like that. And apparently it's, this is, he does these you know, he insists on doing these stand uppers in front of that when he does a lot of the Sunday shows and stuff. And I get it. It's a good backdrop, you know, and all that. And um, I started going on this tear about how it'd be awesome if John Kasich did the same thing and just had his dad in his mailman uniform chained up to a tree behind him, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, and so anyway, I think, you know, uh, Nikki was smart to say that she's not going to run against... Uh, Donald Trump in 2020, because the only way that would ever make sense for her to run against Donald Trump in 2020, if it was obvious that Donald Trump was either not going to run or was so damaged by something that Mueller found or, you know, uh, some, you know, really unfortunate living creature that he found in the trunk of his car or something like that, that... Uh, You can't plan on those things, but by staying loyal, she has managed to do something that no one else has done. She's, at least as a politician, she's the only politician to work for Donald Trump who has had her reputation not only not diminished, but literally enhanced, right? I mean, even Mattis, who's not a politician, so it doesn't really count, he's taken a lot of slings and arrows. And while people respect him, it's more of like the kind of thank God he's there as a circuit breaker kind of thing. It's not like, oh my gosh, I want him to run for president one day. I don't think Mike Pence has helped himself very much at all as Donald, Donald Trump's Renfield, the way he acts. And um, meanwhile, Nikki has managed to Nikki Haley's managed to be a defender of the Trump administration and therefore popular among the sort of the MAGA crowd. But she's also remarkably popular among the anti MAGA crowd. And she's she's arguably the most unifying figure, more so than our friend Ben Sass um who has earned the ire of a lot of the MAGA people than anybody else in the party. And, you know, I, I wish her well. I hope good things that good things happen. But it's it's just kind of a remarkable story. And um and she I do think she's kind of a you know break glass in case of emergency uh, figure for the Republican Party that if the Republican Party goes down in flames in twenty twenty or in even in 2018 or, or between then and then, Nikki being a sort of minority woman who's got this great story, who is on the right side of almost all the issues, who never really, you know, you know earn the ire of anybody who wants the United States to still stand for freedom in the world and all the rest. Um, she's a great sort of go-to sort of lifesaver um, uh, should the need arise. Um, and people who think that she should be Mike Pence's uh, running mate, uh, I think, are deluding themselves. I, I, Vice presidencies are normally very hard. There's only been two sitting vice presidents elected straight to the White House in American history. I'm pretty sure about this. Martin Van Buren in, I want to say, 1836 and George H.W. Bush. And George H.W. Bush inherited a roaring economy, the end of the Cold War, and he was running against Michael Dukakis, Which, uh, who? (laughs) Yeah, no, exactly. You can go back to, you know, Sun Tzu. Everyone says, when in battle, it is best to face Michael Dukakis. (laughs) Um, and so I think, uh, you know, and and Pence, uh, you know, one of the reasons why it's hard for vice presidents to run for president directly, people have been vice president and then had time out and run, like, like Richard Nixon, but, um, and there
1: have been vice presidents who became, uh, president through misfortune and then remained president. President, yeah. Although some of those vice presidents would say through good fortune, that's <laughs> or or if uh, if you believe some of the more salacious conspiracy theories through Skullduggery. yes, yes, yes. I, I do not,
0: in fact, believe that LBJ killed JFK.
1: Well, I I, I agree with the the Onion um, fake uh, front page from the Kennedy assassination that that it reads something like uh, JFK slain by LBJ Cubans Freemasons. Uh, It just lists a bunch of other Uh groups. And then then his brain was taken away um, to Area 51 to sit next to Hitler's brain. (laughs) (laughs) It's just like every possible conspiracy theory you can think of marshaled into one text. It's really entertaining.
0: And so uh, anyway, we can do uh, 2020. We have plenty of time for more presidential 2020 um, speculation, right? Uh, between now and twenty twenty, okay. well,
1: unless unless the time travel happens again, which we again we can't control on this podcast, it sometimes just happens.
0: That's true. That is true. Um, what other rank punditry topics? Well, oh, Kavanaugh. Right. At some point, we should. I we've yet to really address Kavanaugh on this.
1: Yeah, podcast. but before we move on, uh-huh. um, are there any more nice things you want to say about Nikki Haley? She's not only
0: an attractive woman; she's a brilliant woman.
1: Uh- <laughs> I, I, I'm only bringing that up, so. Scott Emmergut, the Ricochet mastermind, says that podcasts are entertaining when there's drama. So now I feel obligated to say, to at least uh, disagree with you about something okay. about Nikki Haley. So uh, what, what can I disagree with? Um, hmm, here's something. Perhaps, is, can she truly have, here? okay, here's a good thing. Can she truly, can she maintain this image of an incredibly popular politician if she reinserts herself into the fray? Like, can if she actually goes back into the crab bucket, won't she just immediately be dragged back into it? Yeah, but she's so far she's been really good. I mean, look, this is a
0: this is the daughter of a dude in a turban who, um, and I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. I'm just talking about South Carolina politics are famously vicious and ugly. You know, I mean, probably in some ways, Republican state politics in South Carolina may be the ugliest of any state in the last thirty years. Horrible stuff. If you go back and look at the presidential primary in 2000, what they did to go after John McCain to save George W. Bush's run, it was grotesque. Um, if you look at all the nasty, totally false, as far as I'm concerned, um, or as aware, rumors that they peddled about Nikki Haley and she managed to you know, rise above all of that kind of stuff. Um, She's one of the few governors that successfully managed controversies about, like, the Confederate flag in a way that didn't cost her huge amounts of popularity with Republicans. And um, I think she handled her family's first IRS audit at the age of 14 as the family accountant. So she's this shockingly impressive
1: (laughs) person. Can I I hire her?
0: (laughs) (laughs) And um, and so, yeah, look, I mean, you can tell already there have been been these ankle-biting attacks on her of late, they're trying to do to her what Democrats did to, like, Miguel Estrada in the, in the 2000s and, and like, attack her as a fake minority or as a – you know, some people are doing this sort of in the Kavanaugh, post-Kavanaugh stuff, what they're doing to Susan Collins. You're not really a woman, you know, all that kind of stuff. But if she actually runs at some point, absolutely. The left will dehumanize and attack her in vicious ways. I am sure there will be elements in the Republican Party that will do the same. Roger Stone came out of one of his various sex dungeons recently to <laughs> revisit the idea that there's some massive conspiracy going on, and maybe she really was the author of Anonymous, and that's why she was forced to quit, which is complete garbage. If Trump actually thought she was the author of the Anonymous op-ed, uh, you know, he probably would have prosecuted her. And so I think that-
1: Unless she has compromise.
0: I mean, unless she has compromise, yeah. But, I mean, I I I, I I, I, certainly think she will get beyond her fair share of attacks, you know, down the road if she gets back into politics, um, which I think she will. Again, I have no inside information about this. I just think she will. Um, I think the way she has stagecrafted her departure and her entire tenure at the UN is she's, you know, she's a 46-year-old, really savvy politician. And so they'll go after her. But she managed to go... Th- two years through the minefield of the Trump administration and not get blown up. And, and Or as we'll get back to the operating metaphor, she did two years in the crab bucket and not get pulled back down. Um, so sure, they'll attack her again, and they'll attack her viciously, I'm sure. But uh, you know, in this era, everybody gets attacked viciously because that's the nature of our politics. And uh, I don't know what my wife is going to do next, but I'm... I th- I gather that she's very happy about how all this worked out, and um, we'll see what the next next chapter is. I very much would love to get my wife on this podcast, but so far she has refused. I think listeners would enjoy it. Um, you know, she could make fun of me, which everyone seems to like, mm-hmm. um, and we could talk about Alaska and dogs and whatnot. Anyway, so um, speaking of viciously attacking people, I guess we should cover the Kavanaugh thing. I've gotten... A lot of, yeah. I know, I'm not going to dwell on it long. I thought that, uh, you know, and I, I don't want to do the full Santa and Miracle on 34th Street and send all the Macy's cu- customers to Gimbals, but oh. <laughs> I think the, the editor's podcasts, the last couple of them and the McCarthy Report ones and actually the commentary ones that, I don't know if you know the commentary is this little niche podcast.
1: Uh, yeah, I think I've heard of it.
0: And, um, they all were great on Kavanaugh, and, you know, I learned a lot from them. And since it's in the rear view mirror, we don't need to dwell on it too much. I do, I gotten a lot of pushback from my position, which is that first of all, I think it was the best of a lot of bad, um, choices or, or, or outcomes. Um, I do think the damage done to Kavanaugh is real. Um, I do think the damage that is being done to the court is real. I think I don't want to hear another friggin', you know, Democrat or You know, MSNBC host talking about how only Republicans are attacking or eroding democratic norms. Um, when these people are saying, um, screaming at the top of their lungs that the Supreme Court is now illegitimate and how dare you, you know, compromise the integrity of the Supreme Court. And so now the Supreme Court is illegitimate. It's, it's, it's screaming the Supreme Court is now illegitimate is a way to illegitimize the Supreme Court. Um, all the stuff about court packing, all of this stuff is a classic example, you know, my, my classic my, my my go-to explanation about understanding progressivism is they always go go where the field is open. And any institution custom norm that is a hindrance on their uh, uh, progress towards the end zone as they see it is automatically declared illegitimate. I mean my favorite example of this was up until up until the night Donald Trump was elected, right? Until the final election results came in. Salon, Slate, Washington Post, they all ran these gloating pieces about the, um, what do they call it? The, the blue wall. The blue wall, right? Because they had 193 electoral votes in the bank. And so therefore, all they needed to do was win, you know, was it Florida and like two other states and they automatically won. And this is great and shows how the, you know, it's, it's blue skies forever, literally speaking in, in a way. And then the second the electoral college favors Donald Trump, uh, we get all of these crazy, th- you know, suck thumb sucking till you lose your fingerprint BS pieces about how the Electoral College is a bastion of white supremacy and it's racist.
1: Uh-huh. <laughs> and it's like we've always been at war with the Electoral College.
0: Yeah. But I mean, like, I mean, it, they didn't even pause for a second to think about how we had just spent the last Three years bragging, yeah. about how this bastion of white supremacy was in our favor. <laughs> well, that's
1: that's ex- I I I didn't I don't know if you noticed, but that was a nineteen eighty four reference. I, just, I I got it. I did. But that's exactly how it's depicted in nineteen eighty four. They it's literally at a rally where all the signage and the word uh, and speech changes like instantly. Yeah, I'm not saying that. that only the left is guilty of this kind of political behavior. It's a universal political trait, motivated reasoning and all that. But this is a good example of it coming from the left. Like,
0: No, that's right. I mean, it's like, so like, I listened to Max Boot on Charlie Sykes's podcast, the Weekly Standard podcast. It's another, I like all these like little obscure podcasts. And... Um, <laughs>
1: it's nice to have a little a collection of them.
0: And we don't need to dwell too much on it. But, you know, Charlie and Max are of different flavors, but a lot of overlap in their views on what's happened to the right, you know, and obviously I share some of them. Um, I thought Max's attack on Goldwater, you know, like, was like um, was a little bit out of the Cultural Revolution where all of a sudden since I've s- s- sort of switched sides, I must now recant everything
1: <sighs> <laughs> that, you know, that I once believed. Also, that's kind of a uh, cadaver synod-esque to just reach back in time and say, oh yeah, this Barry Goldwater fellow, by the way. What a what a terrible person he was. Cadaver synod-esque. Yeah. I, I like it. Do you not know what the cadaver synod is? I don't remember what the cadaver... I've, I've heard the phrase, but... I, it's, oh, it's... Uh, I don't remember the historical specifics, but basic, the, the basic outline... Ross Douthat or Michael Brennan Doherty could tell you it just offhand, but the basic outline is that one pope in, in the early Middle Ages got... That's right. ...really mad at... The legacy and the like policies of a, of a pope who had already died. So they dug him up and tried him. Yeah, yeah and then yeah, yeah, threw yeah. his body into the Tiber, and then later took the body out again. Yeah, and and defiled it further. Um, this
0: is all, this is practice, I believe, is also called gibbeting. Gibbeting, where you take someone's corpse and you hang it because <laughs> you know they they just still deserve punishment. <laughs> um, but um, um, the the. Where was I? Oh, yeah. So, there, so Max and and Charlie were talking on a podcast, and you know, one of the things that they both agreed on, which I agree with too, is that since we're all, you know, this podcast is called the Remnant, that political homelessness does allow you to sort of get outside of your own tribe a little bit and look at its characteristics. And so, I agree. There are all sorts of you know bad habits that Republicans have, and I've spent a lot of time criticizing them. But uh, one of the things the Kavanaugh thing, the whole Kavanaugh spectacle exposed was just how utterly complicit and all all of the problems that we have in our politics, the left are. And in in this episode, they were worse than the Republicans. And that is one of the reasons why the Republicans, well, the conservative movement all sort of rallied and um, and, and rallied around Kavanaugh and – and I, I certainly did. I, you know, I was all in for Kavanaugh. But I was all in for Kavanaugh for precisely the reason that I thought letting the tactics that they used would set a worse precedent than confirming Kavanaugh would. But there is real lasting damage that has been done by the whole spectacle. And I think the left deserves the the overwhelming majority of the blame in this instance. But the celebratory tone is what – I think is, is sort of misplaced, and I got a lot of pushback on my column, where uh, which I <laughs> had to write in a state of absolute panic because of travel screw ups in, in in Santa Barbara. Um, uh,
1: panic is a great drug.
0: It is. Well, it was, it was not a pleasant process. It was a real chaotic thing. Um, but you know the the Trump victory rally thing. I thought was ill-advised and unseemly. I think everyone is sort of taking the wrong lessons from this in the sense that uh, you know <laughs> there were a lot of people on Twitter making this argument that this proves that you know that Donald Trump it was right it's fine to argue that the appointment of two really good Supreme Court justices is a validation of the decision to hold your nose and vote for the lesser of two evils in 2016 that, you know, this binary choice transactional thing, that is all completely validated. What is not validated is the idea that Trump's tactics, demeanor, and approach to politics has been validated by this. The, you know, Kavanaugh is – Kavanaugh is basically the crown prince of the Republican establishment. He would have been on any Republican president's shortlist. Um, he – you know the lobbying by George W. Bush probably did more to persuade, and and by Mitch McConnell probably did more to persuade Susan Collins and Jeff Flake than anything Trump said. And in fact, one of the one of the most precarious moments in that whole thing was when Trump did that Mississippi rally attacking Christine Ford, and then and you know in this interview with uh, Janine Pirro, he said he basically took credit. He's basically said that's what you know, he said, after I did that, it was smooth sailing. Mm-hmm. Right. And and so this gets to this point I keep bringing up on here is that the whole reason why, why Trump has to pick from that list and had to come up with that list in the first place wasn't because the MAGA people made him do it. It was because the Trump skeptical people made him do it. They were like, we don't trust you because, you know, up until now, you've talked about maybe your sister being on the Supreme Court. And so it's one of these classic examples of the people who aren't all in on Trump, putting pressure on Trump successfully to get him to do the right thing. And instead, the takeaway from a lot of people, a lot of the usual suspects is, oh, this proves, you know, that that the but he fights or at least he fights thing is what wins the day. When in reality, you know, it was... The, he deserves credit for naming him. He deserves credit for sticking to his promise of, of sticking to the list. He, des- he deserves credit for not abandoning him. But one of the reasons he didn't abandon him is that Mitch McConnell said that he was going to be all in on him too. And, you know, Mitch McConnell is the guy who got, who shepherded this thing across. I was talking to a prominent journalist who I will not name, who was convinced that McConnell played this thing so brilliantly that he had Susan Collins, and this is pure the rankest of rank punditry speculation
1: yeah i'm I'm waving my hand in front of my nose um that Susan Collins was basically
0: McConnell's gal on the inside. It was sort of her his senatorial Matahari, working um, with the sort of moderate types, reporting back to McConnell. Um, because McConnell had, had cleared in advance that Kavanaugh was acceptable to her. And, um, this was an inside the game, inside the, you know, inside the beltway game that McConnell played perfectly. And let's not forget that the MAGA crowd, led by Steve Bannon at the time, had declared that Mitch McConnell was public enemy number one, and it was their top priority to get rid of him. The idea being that somehow Ted Cruz could have gotten, you know, Kavanaugh across the finish line. I mean, that's ridiculous. And so, the people were all, the people who are taking the lessons from this are that, Oh, this hammer and tongs fight to the bitter end stuff is what works. And it's only when the establishment caves into Trumpism that we get these kinds of victories. And meanwhile, the left's lessons from all of this is to take that friggin' you know, ass clown Michael Avenatti as the exemplar of how they should do things. And have a slash and burn policy towards all institutions and all norms that are inconvenient to them, and have a, a, a you know perpetual impeachment arguments about not just Trump but about Kavanaugh for as far as the eye can see, and triple and quintuple down on identity politics nonsense about how you know believe all women, and now I mean, now they're throwing they're throwing white women under the bus, you know. So everyone's taking away the wrong lessons from all of this, and it's going to get worse. And so that's why I say, you know, I'm glad Kavanaugh made it to the bench because oh, if he had been blocked, it would have been worse. But the lessons taken from this are all bad. And, you know, this is why we're not going to be able to have nice things for a while. <laughs> uh, but speaking of nice things, um, we should talk about our first sponsor, and that is Donors Trust. Let's talk for a minute about Donors Trust. Donors Trust. Since you're listening to this podcast, you demonstrate a care for bedrock American principles. But is giving to these principles, which in turn supports podcasts like this one, important to you? If so, then Donors Trust can simplify your giving and even take it to the next level. Consider this situation. It's late December, and you need to write multiple year-end contributions. You wish for extra time to be strategic with your gifts, but settle for hurriedly writing the same checks as usual. Or consider this situation. You just received an unexpected inheritance or sold your company and want to reduce your tax burden while supporting some liberty-loving charities, but you lack both the time and the right advisor to work through all the red tape. If either of these situations sound familiar, take a closer look at Donors Trust, the Community Foundation for Liberty. They offer donor-advised funds, philanthropic advice, and legacy protection, all with favorable tax benefits, additional privacy, and ease of use. With Donors Trust, you'll be able to easily support the nonprofit groups you care about most, from think tanks to your church or synagogue or to the countless charities using private dollars to solve public problems. A fund is easy to start. Find out how a donor advised fund can benefit you by visiting donorstrust.org/dingo to receive your free six reasons to use a donor advised fund guide. Remnant listeners will also receive a special bonus: two additional eBooks to help you identify principle-driven charities that deserve your support. Again, take your charitable giving to the next level by visiting donorstrust.org/dingo right now to get your free guide on using a donor advised fund with donors trust. Okay.
1: So before you move on, uh or I don't know if you're moving on from the Kavanaugh subject, I think I am, but you, 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 you decide, you know, it's mutiny. Go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so I, I was actually, I'll confess that I was sort of gravitating toward the, there, the, the argument, uh, that emerged, during the Kavanaugh hearings, that um, Trump's attitude about things in, in political matters was actually a successful one, one worth emulating. Um, but it was Ramesh Panuru who wrote he wrote this column addressing this argument in, in particular. And anytime I get, I get sort of anyone who finds him or herself uh, on the. Opposing end of an argument from Ramesh should be should be frightened. <laughs> no, that's right. I mean <laughs> anytime it, he like trains his his eye on a line of thought that he disagrees with, it's like, uh-oh. What's going to No,
0: that's right. <laughs> I mean, Ramesh is one of the few guys out there, you another, that if they take a position different from their mind, they don't necessarily always convince me I'm wrong, uh-huh. but they always cause the panic in me that I might be wrong Yeah, and so, I have to take it really seriously.
1: So yeah. Ramesh caused this panic and and then which became agreement that Trump, what what you said? Trump was actually more—he was a hindrance. Yeah, and that he all, and also he brought up the example of no, notorious rhino squish George H. W. Bush, not backing down from Clarence Thomas. Right. Um. So it's not like this behavior is unprecedented. No, that's right. Um. And I, I honestly believe. Look, the the, the reason why. So I went and did Fox and
0: Friends, um, on Saturday. You know, I wrote a couple, just hammer and tongs pieces attacking the the witch hunt atmosphere going after Kavanaugh. And so I got invited back to Fox & Friends, which I don't think I'd been on for a year. And the way they promoted the, the segment was uh, something along the lines of the Kavanaugh controversy is causing even the most ardent never-Trumpers to become deplorables. Will this unify the party? Blah, 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 blah. And I pushed back on that both internally at Fox but also on air um, and also on you know, the conversation I had with Pete Hegseth before we went live. That This hasn't turned me into a deplorable. I was for conservative Supreme Court justices back when Donald Trump didn't give a rat's ass about conservative Supreme Court justices. This has been a goal and a priority for the right for 40 years since Bork at least. And, um, you know, to say that there's this issue and the only issue so far in the Trump presidency that brought on everybody, you know, basically everybody except I can't even think of anybody, I man. Tom, Tom Nichols, and Max Boot, maybe, uh, and Jen Rubin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's not go there.
1: Um, trying to think of one, perhaps bizarre, maybe like Catholic. Uh, Neo uh were just descended from this as a sort of general disgust about the fact that we're conducting our politics in a democratic manner.
0: Maybe, but you <laughs> you follow ultramontane Twitter and these things more closely. than Yeah,
1: Twitter. this is but, just uh, raw speculation on my part.
0: But as a general proposition, when Brett Stevens says, for once, I'm grateful for Trump in a column, you know, uh, you should do one of two things. You should, one, check to see if the Potomac has turned to a river of blood. Um,
1: Although he's not based out of D.C. I
0: know, but it's figurative, dude. The and, Hudson. No, the Hudson, yeah. And to all the rivers, okay. <laughs> Every and river. uh, and two, um, you should think that maybe this issue was bigger than Trump. And the, again, the reason why Trump agreed to have this list was that you could not unify conservatives around his candidacy without... Um, that promise. That was one of the red line promises. And that's why I've been saying for two years now that Donald Trump only had two conservative unifying mandates in 2016. The promise that he would not be Hillary Clinton, which he achieved on day one. <laughs> um, Unlike
1: Disney's uh, Hall of Presidents robot, which probably was designed as a Hillary robot, but then it was hastily redesigned to be a Trump robot. Is that a real thing, or are you just have you seen the pictures of this robot? No, it it does not look at all like Trump. It it the 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 way the body is constructed, it clearly looks like it was meant to be a Hillary robot. But then they just didn't want to make a new one, so they fascinating. Yeah,
0: I did not know that. Um, and two, conservative Supreme Court justices, are conservative justices, and but the idea that all of a sudden any of the criticisms I have about Donald Trump should. Are uh, almost any, um, should be obviated by the fact that he ended up doing what movement conservatives wanted him to do and considered um, the price of admission um, is just bizarre to me. And there's so much cheap credit taking going on by people who just want to do this, I told you so thing and and say, see, we were right. And I just, I don't buy any of it. And the fact that so many people, including colleagues of mine at Fox News, have have the, are taking away that lesson, I think, is going to um, uh, bring out some really unpleasant surprises in the next days or weeks because, uh, you know, I don't think that large numbers of people have changed their minds about what bothers them about Trump. And if Trump were really smart about politics, he, what he would do is he would try to foster that unity on the right. In ways that don't come across as this, you know, this sort of gloating that he did in the White House. Um, but instead, we're going to go back to, you know, we're going to have a regression to the mean of the Trump presidency in the next twenty minutes. I'm sure.
1: Um, I'll, set a, I'll set a timer. <laughs> um,
0: so, changing subjects, I am leaving. Tomorrow. Actually, we are.
1: You're actually, yeah. you're coming. Would this you- is a first. I. This is a first. Yeah. I've never. Only we only went to the RNC. "Quote unquote," together, but I made my plans separately from yours, and in fact, spent a lot of my time just trying to track you down. Yeah, yeah. at the convention,
0: going to one dive bar after another. Yeah, where, where's Jonah <laughs> um, Goldberg? Um, kept kicking open bathroom stalls, assuming I was the guy throwing up. But um, <laughs> uh, we're going to Notre Dame tomorrow. Uh, we're go. What is the conference called? Something?
1: Uh, I, th- I think it it may have a name, but I <laughs> it eludes me at the moment.
0: <laughs> yeah. So tomorrow I'm going to be on a panel with or Thursday night, for those of you who don't follow this stuff. And is there going to be a live stream of this thing?
1: I think so, yes. Yeah,
0: so we'll have that on the show notes. I'm going to be on a panel tomorrow night with Patrick Deneen author of Why Liberalism Failed and Charles Kessler. And then on Friday, I'm going to be debating Charles Kessler about Donald Trump, which mm-hmm. should be interesting. Um, and I'll, I'll hold my fire since I've already done my... I filled my quota of Trump negativity already. Um, but I have... I've I've dipped in and out of Deneen's book a bunch over the last couple of months, but I finally really jumped in and um, on my drive back from Ohio, I listened to about two thirds of it. And you know, it's weird. All of these people, when when my book came out, there were always people who wanted me to debate Deneen because they thought we were diametrically opposed. And the reality is, is that there are vast swaths of that book that I agree with.
1: I mean, you you quote Deneen in Suicide of the West, yeah.
0: And I'm not. not, not I'm a fan of Deneen's.
1: I don't. I don't
0: know that Danine is a fan of mine. There was some weird sniping at me from him a while back. Um, but uh, I assume he doesn't loathe me. I mean, I've I've had drinks with him before. I, uh, I like the guy. I think he's interesting. He's in many ways the kind of conservative I have a real soft spot in my heart for because he doesn't like any of modernity. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he's
1: a. Uh... Do you think he would have worn a cape at some prior point in his life? He might have.
0: And, and there still be, there may be cape days ahead of him. Um, <laughs> but there's a Tolkien esque quality to him and his sort of standing athwart all of it. And, and so there are big chunks of his critiques of modernity that I very much agree with where I, but I also have some profound disagreement. It's funny. It's, it's sort of like, so the Pinker book, Steven Pinker's book, Enlightenment Now, is sort of a much bigger version of the appendix of my book. And the appendix of my book which which Jack did heroic effort on is just a sort of beat the reader over the head with all the data about how things have gotten better. Right? How the Correct. social improvement, economic improvement, all of these things have happened. And Pinker's book is like all the way through. And one of the problems I have with Pinker and I'll be honest and full disclosure, I've not read all of the Pinker book yet, but I've read a bunch of it and read a lot of reviews of it and heard him talk about it, is that he tends to take the position that everything he likes about modernity is because of the Enlightenment, and anything he doesn't like is not the Enlightenment. And he also has this uh, tendency to say, the treat the Enlightenment as if it was one thing. And the Enlightenment wasn't one thing. The French Enlightenment was very different than the than the English Enlightenment or the Scottish Enlightenment. And the German Enlightenment was different than them both. And the American Enlightenment was a distinct thing as well. Out of the French Enlightenment, we get all sorts of really, really terrible things. You know, um, we get the terror, we get the, I would argue, the precursors of uh, both fascism and communism. The Jacobins were profound nationalists who basically believed that France was the new Chosen people, um, they were militarists, they were totalitarian, they killed millions, not millions, they killed tens of thousands of their own people. They believed in statology, you know, the worship of the state. They wanted to purge society of religion entirely. They tr- converted the temple of Notre Dame to the temple of reason. Um, Which we're
1: going to do on uh, tomorrow. <laughs>
0: <laughs> different temples. And, uh, um, and, uh, uh, You know, that didn't come out of the English Enlightenment or the Scottish Enlightenment or the American Enlightenment. And, um, you get the, you know, the, the, the beginnings of modern nationalism as an ideology are a rebellion against the principles of the French Enlightenment, which were imposed on places like Germany at the, at, at gunpoint. And, um, so a lot of bad things come out of the, the Enlightenment. And that's one of the reasons why, well, I, Use the phrases you know, enlightenment-based democracy and that kind of stuff in the book. I tend to harp on this concept of the miracle because the miracle depends on all sorts of cultural customs and norms that come out of the English tradition that weren't grounded in a sort of worship of reason. They're grounded in weird, you know, customs that go back to the fourth century, and um, it's a it's a much more of a sort of a tribal, um, organic. Understanding of where freedom and liberty and rights come from—that the the abstract principles of the American founding were a flowering of, but they were also an imposition on that kind of stuff. And so, what's funny is is that if you did a Venn diagram, you know, with three circles, I I don't think that Pinker and Danine would touch, but I would overlap with both of them. You know, I would be the one in the middle Hmm. because the suicide of the West. Um, grants a lot of the things that Deneen is saying about how civil society, particularity, uh, custom, culture, these things are hugely important. They give us a sense of embeddedness and a real culture, um, that radical individualism is a problem, that there are problems within capitalism that are eroding the, the, the superstructure that allows liberty to thrive. I agree with all of that stuff from Deneen. But at the same time, I mean, maybe there's a surprise ending. I haven't finished the Deneen book, but he talks about, you know, the last 500 years is almost as if nothing good has happened. <laughs> I mean, it's just it's bizarre to me that for I don't know. I, I, again, I'm listening on an audiobook, so I would assume the first 150 pages or something like that. Um, he barely he has, barely mentions poverty except on like the first page, and barely mentions the fact that. You know the the scientific revolution and liberalism and the new new political science that the founding fathers represented led to um, millions of people uh, living past age thirty of not dying of horrible diseases of slavery ending. You know, I mean, if you want to start over from five hundred years ago, you're going to throw out a lot of really good stuff. And I'm not saying that he wants to do that necessarily. What he wants to do, a lot of his uh, prescriptions are stuff that I agree with about. Pushing power down to local levels, allowing for institutions to have at the ground level to have more control over our lives, um, I agree with all of that. But it's it's funny. It's like Pinker, like it's like Deneen is a offers a prosecutor's brief against classical liberalism, right? Where he just basically marshals every conceivable argument about why it's bad and why it's led to bad things. And I disagree with some of – it profoundly with some of his explanations about this. And Pinker offers like the argument from the, the defendant where it's <laughs> just all good things, right? And I mean I, I'm not trying to make myself seem like I'm this vital center guy who's, you know, um, above it all. But uh, part of my whole definition of conservatism is that um, there are trade offs to everything and that good things have a downside and bad things have an upside and – uh, Denine's indictment of liberalism is is profoundly bleak, um, and I think just really overwrought. And and Pinker's washing away of custom and tradition, which he did not do in Blank Slate, um, uh, near as much. He you know he had kind words for Burke in the Blank Slate. And yeah. He doesn't in Enlightenment now, right?
1: Yeah, uh, I'll say an acquaintance of mine, Jason Willick of the Wall Street Journal, pointed this out in an essay in uh, Modern Age. He's distinguishing between Old Pinker and New Pinker. Yeah.
0: And I think Burke was part of the Enlightenment, part of the English Enlightenment, or the Scottish Enlightenment, or whatever you want to call it, the good Enlightenment. But he was a conservative critic from within it, noting that you can't go too fast, that you have to take account of the little platoons of civil society. You have to take account of the sort of organic nature of culture. And you can't just ride roughshod over it. That's why he was, he was very favorable or very sympathetic to the American founders and, um, and our cause, but uh, extremely critical of what the, the French were doing and reflections on the revolution in France. And, and it seems to me that that's sort of the middle way is that you want to have an organic – understanding of, of your own traditions, that you want to raise people in these civilizing institutions within your own traditions and your customs and your culture. But you also want to make room for air conditioning and penicillin. <laughs> um, and and it seems to me that's the compromise. That's sort of the golden mean between these two. It's so, it's so cool for me to be a centrist on this stuff. Anyway, we'll, we'll talk more about this, I'm sure, after I finish the book and after we do this this debate thing. Um,
1: yeah, I hope he doesn't listen to this podcast. Otherwise, he'll know everything you're going to say in advance.
0: Oh, no. I actually, it was funny. So, I'm, you know, I'm doing, I'm making good time in my car and I'm taking notes with, while keeping my eye on the road. So it, 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 it looks like I was writing a note, you know, identifying my killer. <laughs> <laughs> the handwriting is just like all down the page, but I have lots of notes on it. And, you know, I think he could have, he would have benefited a lot from reading more Schumpeter, but that's for another time. Um, but we should. But what is for right now is ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter for all time. ZipRecruiter Zip is eternal. It's the alpha and omega of all podcasts. Um, as long as
1: you restrict it to the podcast, because you were you were inching toward blasphemy there.
0: <laughs> uh, that's fair. That's fair. That wouldn't be smart. <laughs> so you know what else is not smart? There are job sites that send you tons of the wrong resumes to sort through. That's not smart. There are job sites that make you wait for the right candidates to apply to your job. Not smart. You know what else is not smart? Using your relatives to fill in at work while you look for staff. But you know what is smart? Going to ZipRecruiter.com slash dingo to hire the right person. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. It's powerful matching technology, scans thousands of resumes, identifies people with the right skills, education, and experience for your job, and actively invites them to apply so you get qualified candidates fast. That's why ZipRecruiter is rated number one, number uno, numero uno, by employers in the U.S. This rating comes from hiring sites on Trustpilot with over 1,000 reviews. And right now, my listeners... My dear listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash dingo. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash dingo. ZipRecruiter.com slash dingo. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. So, um, Tales from the Road. As you may recall, there was a time when, in my mostly playful denigration of you on this podcast mm-hmm. that i used to make various uh um over the line inappropriate uh s&m jokes about you and uh because my wife and others convinced me that that was a little too much um i held back i i, I refrained from doing that apparently not everybody noticed
1: uh-huh. <laughs> while
0: i was at university of santa barbara uh by the way a great crowd there too we had um probably 350 people show up for that which was really great and i'm really grateful to people because that was uh for non-students that was 25 bucks a ticket and i was worried that that was a hurdle that a lot of people wouldn't cross
1: yeah that's you could have bought a copy of suicide of the west for that amount of money you
0: could have yeah and uh, and at cedarville we had like 650 people which was great so imagine if if usb hadn't charged 25
1: bucks who knows how many people i would have (laughs) had
0: um but um
1: uh, fake news would have never reported anyway.
0: So a bunch of people, you know, they come by and I get more and more people who listen to The Remnant um, who want to talk about The Remnant. They ask how Jack is. A lot of people ask how the dogs are. And one guy comes up and he's got like a tote bag and he says, I've, I've got a gift for you. And, you know, uh, I was hoping that this would be a replay of what happened in Oklahoma City and he would give me a bottle of scotch as, <laughs> as some of the greatest Americans who ever lived did. Um Instead, he pulls out of his bag and says, "Actually, it's it's really for um, it's for Jack, and it is a dog's choke collar,
1: mm-hmm. like the
0: kind you have for like a Rottweiler." And I had to, and I didn't know how to respond to this. There were lots of people waiting in line for signing, <laughs> and I just was like, "Thanks." And I, I said that I you know I kind of don't do those jokes about Jack anymore. And uh, he's like, "Oh, I, I I hadn't realized." But he didn't take back the choke collar, so I have it if you if you want it. Um,
1: uh ass. <laughs> I'll say this. Uh-huh. I I I'll consider it a testament to my my vigor that you compared it to that the sort of collar that you'd put on a Rottweiler. Uh-huh. Okay. You would need that to contain me.
0: Yeah, I actually to be honest, I would sooner put it on you than put it on a dog. I hate those things. They they pinch and they hurt They're fur. Uh,
1: do, do I want to know how you know
0: that? <laughs> Cuz I know what they're designed to do. And um and I understand some people use them for training and all that, but uh, I'm I'm pretty decidedly against it. We used it very briefly on Zoe, and we hated it back when she was threatening to kill all sorts of dogs. So, and then um last night in Ohio at Cedarville, um, this guy came up to me and he says, "I have a present for you." I was like, "Okay, now I'm getting my scotch." <laughs> and then he said, "And I thought about bringing you scotch." But this is a dry campus in a dry county, so instead I have this for you. And he gives me a one free drink coupon for Southwest Airlines. <laughs> oh. <laughs> which was nice, you know, and I have it. I I will put it to use. Um and somebody else at this meet and greet thing gave me a cigar, which I appreciated, but um but no, it was a great turnout. I had one kid come up to me who looked like one of the minions from Bob Ro- Bob Roberts. Did you ever see that movie? No. Okay. Well, he was sort of a glassy eyed kid and a crisp white shirt and tie coming to me and he said, "Um, I don't want to get a book signed, but I want to ask you a question. I was like, okay, you know, because that happens 20 times a night. He said, would it be okay if I videotape you? And I was like, sure, whatever. And then he reads this prepared question about some law that Israel passed um, declaring it a Jewish state and blah, blah,
1: blah. Ah, one of those.
0: And I felt bad because he thought he was being really clever and I didn't, I immediately assumed he was one of these jackasses I get, you know, all this anti Semitic stuff on, on Twitter from. I'm not sure he was that. But I said, you know, look, I got a line of 40 people here, 50 people here. And I was mad. You know, he, he pissed me off. And I said, you can't videotape me doing this. And I was like, what are you going to use this videotape for? I just want to show it to my friends. I was like, no, you can't do that. So he put his <laughs> phone away. And, you know, and I gave him a, a brief version of my answer, which is basically that, you know, uh, there's a the, it, this is one of the cheap debating points that a lot of the sort of alt right guys use, right? Where they say they'll go after me in email or on Twitter, and they'll say, you know, you Jews, you're fine for walls for your country, Israel. I must have had a hundred people write me. There's almost like a form letter that they have about this thing, right? And uh, and it's this. First of all, it's they immediately assert as part of the premise that because my last name's Goldberg and I'm Jewish, that therefore my real allegiance is to Israel, you know, it's your country, right? And they say, you're, you're good with, you think walls are good for your country, but you don't want one for ours, right? Or for mine, right? For white people or all those kinds of things. And first of all, I was in favor of, you know, I think the first time I wrote in favor of the wall was in 2007, you know. six two 2006, right? And, you know, back when Donald Trump was, even before Donald Trump was, you know, attacking Mitt Romney for being um, too tough on immigration.
1: Yeah, that was after the 2012 election. Right.
0: And um, And back before Trump was all in favor of helping out the Dreamers and all these kinds of things. But moreover, it's this, you know, what they're really trying to say is, and a lot of them are explicit about it, is that America is a nation for their version of white Christian people. And it should be like Israel is for Jews, but maybe with a little less democracy, Um, and uh, it's such a cheap and shabby form of argumentation, and I probably was a little too harsh on this kid because I just assumed that's where he was coming from. Yeah. And so we talked for a while, and I said, look, there's a huge category errors between a country of 7 million people, uh, 5 million people, founded to be the one place in the entire world where uh, Jews won't be eradicated. In a country of three hundred and twenty, three hundred and thirty million people that was founded on a creedal notion about liberty and whatnot, and that isn't surrounded by three hundred, four hundred million people who historically have wanted to see it wiped off the map. And he kinda got it, and there are other people in the line who were getting mad at me for giving him even that much time. But it was this it was weird just a whole weird episode.
1: Yeah, there are also category errors about what it means to be white there. Uh, because so I'm I have Irish ancestry so right. like in 1850 we was... were not considered
0: white <laughs> yeah like I would have you know I mean if you read as I've done at length you know the eugenics stuff from the progressive era the notion that the you know the the that the progressive the, the white progressives considered all people with the same hue or close to hue of skin to be of the same race or of equal worth is just nonsense. I mean, there was the Irish, everybody from the Mediterranean was derided, you know, Oliver Wendell Holmes when he passed Buck versus, when he, you know, ruled on Buck v. Bell and he was talking about three generations of imbeciles being enough. He was talking about white people, you know. There's this great editorial and great in the sense that's really interesting because, you know, there's this argument in eugenics about positive versus negative eugenics. You know, basically, do we uh intervene aggressively to breed better people or do we just create a system by which the worst people die off? Okay. And <laughs> um
1: where do and- you come down on
0: this? <laughs> <laughs> so well so, so the funny thing is Herbert Crowley, founder of the New Republic, the you know, the author of The Bible of American Progressivism, The Promise of American Life, huge influence on the progressives. Um, he wrote an unsigned editorial so uh for the new republic saying that this is a false choice <laughs> that obviously it's not either or it's both and and what we need to do first is create a system where the unfit just die off on their own or are weeded out from the what what Margaret Sanger called the garden of humanity and then once we've taken care of the the low-hanging fruit as it were um we can talk about more positive steps in genetics and and eugenics and there's also just the problem of, of people identifying themselves as white I mean this is this is a, a you know a bad turn and this is another example of one of these things that you know the left you know they love to use me as a going on NPR when I'm attacking Donald Trump and all that kind of stuff but when um I whenever I point out that the left deserves you know a lot of the blame for where we are today I mean it was The the election of Donald Trump is impossible if it hadn't been for the fact that first of all Hillary Clinton was profoundly corrupt and awful and all that, but more broadly that the left had been gloating for decades about how you know white culture whites were going to become a minority we're going to get rid of quote unquote white supremacy how um, you know the legacy of quote unquote white America. Um, was just one of racism and bigotry and genocide and imperialism and all of these terrible things and how this great demographic transition was going to come along where all of those customs, all the customs of white America were going to be overthrown for this new multiracial society. And then they're shocked to find out that some people take offense at any of that. And that, you know, if you force people to say, you know, if you go to your average decent Christian you know, blue-collar white guy, and say, everything that you associate with being an American, everything you associate that your father or your grandfather or your great grandfather did is is, was just pure evil and horrible. You're not going to get a lot of them to say, Oh my gosh, you're right. You're going to get them to say, wait a second, you know, my grandfather fought in World War II. I thought that was pretty good. Or, you know, my dad built a company or or, you know, my My uncle was a deacon and, you know, and helped homeless people, whatever. You know, you get people to sort of all of a sudden get defensive about their whiteness. And then all of a sudden you get people identifying themselves on the same identity politics terms that the left is celebrating for their side. And that Make America Great stuff and all that, you know, which obviously I had problems with, part of it was, you know, a, a somewhat healthy backlash against that stuff. The problem with it is it gets hijacked by people like Bannon, you know, who go around saying, you know, let them call you a racist and a nativist where it is a badge of honor. And you end up getting the situation where um, you get people not saying, instead of saying left-wing identity politics is wrong, they say, we have to surrender to it and have right-wing white identity politics. And I think all of that is incredibly pernicious and dangerous. But anyway, I didn't mean to get into all this. I just wanted to rant about that kid at Cedarville. Any other rank punditry items that you can uh, think
1: of? Um, may I may I advance a theory about what's go, what's wrong with America? Or you what's may. With, you um, may. so I know you're not a lost fan. I don't want to get into arguments about the show's ultimate legacy, but there's a relevant storyline here for for uh, America today that I want to I want to revisit. I think it's in season three, maybe season four. Ben Linus, the sort of wormy character uh, his daughter has been killed by Charles Widmore, the two of whom are sort of vying for control of the island and once this happens Ben Linus is shocked because, and he says his reaction to this is, he changed the rules and so he then sneaks into Widmore's off-island abode and tells him, look man basically, look man, you changed the rules now I'm going to come for you and Whitmore is like, okay, well, I'm, I'm, I'll be ready. I, I understand that we're having this conflict, and I'm not backing down either. But I keep thinking of this moment because I feel like the tribal politics in America is that's that scene. Both sides have internalized a sense of the rules being changed, mm-hmm. or the most tribal elements of each side, and and in both senses, they both see a justification for escalation. And I don't know how how we wind down from that. And
0: I th- no, I think that's exactly right. And I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. You know that that um, the Douglas North explanation about where modernity comes from is that you get enough institutions, a diversity and plurality of institutions, where no single institution has enough power to conquer the other ones, and what emerges from this is sort of like the argument about faction in the federalist papers. What emerges from this is a consensus that everyone needs to abide by the rules, even when they are in the short term, disadvantageous to one of the players Mm -hmm. Um, on the assumption that turnabout will be fair play and that um, you need neutral rules for the society, for everything to work. And and it's sort of like in, you know, in, in, in developmental, Um, economics and politics, you know, the rule is, you know, the first election is not nearly as important as the second election, because it's the second election that proves, because you know, the the, the old joke is is, as one man, one vote, one time, and you elect a dictator, and then he says, okay, I'm in, no more elections.
1: That's why the um, the election of 1800 was so significant. Right. uh, In America, because it's the first time that uh, power peacefully transferred between two parties. Right.
0: Right. And um, and so that's like, remember when I taught that class out at Hillsdale when you were still a student there?
1: Yes, I remember.
0: So uh, back when I was in the uh, Charles Manson bungalow, <laughs> uh, you guys convinced me that um, uh, I should have a party because what was her name um, from Wall Street Journal? I'm spacing. Um, she had a party. Oh, Kim Strassel? Kim Strassel, right. So oh. the argument was she was the one who started the tradition because she had a party for the students at the end of the class oh. at, at the bungalow and served them beer and whatnot. And I pointed out that, no, she did a nice thing. But by me doing it the second time, I turned it into a tradition. Uh huh. And, um, and so anyway, I think you're absolutely right that the place we're at this – is, this is my point about the Kavanaugh mess – is that both sides have taken the lesson – that it needs to be a zero-sum tribal war where you press every advantage as best you can because the other side can't be trusted to play by the rules, so we can't play by the rules, right? Mm-hmm. No unilateral disarmament for as far as the eye can see. And the that is a really hard, in some terms of game theory, it's a really hard dynamic to get out of. And, um, and that's why I think we're going to have sort of, um, you know, Chicago way... Politics. Every time they bring a knife, we're going to bring a gun. Every time we bring a gun, they're going to bring a you know intercontinental ballistic missile, and um, and it's going to be reprisals and that kind of the stuff um, for far as the eye can see, and and so this is one of the things that drives me crazy about just to get back on the Trump thing is I absolutely think that Donald Trump is violating democratic norms. This is sort of where we started, and Trump's biggest defenders that well he was elected to be a disruptor, right? And so it's okay for him to do that, right? But what they always leave out is that once you violate the neutral norms of the game or the established norms of the game, you you can't expect everyone else to respect those norms. And what they want is for Trump to be able to violate whatever norms he wants. And then they want to scream bloody murder when other players in the game violate norms too. And so – you know, I think what the anonymous New York Times writer did was terrible. It was a violation of trust. It was a violation of norms. It shouldn't have been done. But the idea that we should condemn that while celebrating all of Trump's violations of norms is just silly. Of course, the other players in the game are going to not adhere to the rules anymore if they think their, their opponents are not going to adhere to them. If, you know, it's like saying that we're going to play chess And all of my pawns get to move like queens. But how dare you do the same thing with your pawns? Mm -hmm. It's just not how it works. And so what we have now is this argument where everybody's offended. This is what I wrote a comment about this a while back about how it's not so much that we're getting rid of our norms. It's that we're weaponizing them. We want to use the norms any way we want and at the same time condemn the other side. For violating them. This is the game that Mike Pence makes whenever he has to defend Donald Trump about anything and someone criticizes him or goes outside the, you know, colors outside the lines. He always expresses his wistful disappointment that so-and-so would violate some tradition and blah, 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 blah. And then when someone says, well, you know, what about the traditions that Donald Trump violated? And Pence goes, well, we all know that Donald Trump was a, was elected to be a disruptor and blah, 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 blah. Just because you're elected to be a disruptor is not a warrant to say that you get to violate all the norms and no one else can. That's just not how life works. But anyway. So I, I brought this up, I believe, last time. So we're still conducting a survey of NR Podcast listeners and would greatly appreciate your feedback. To take the survey, please go to podcasts.nationalreview.com survey2018 or to our podcast Twitter page at NR Podcasts where the link will also reside. Um, and also we'll put a link to it on the show notes at Jonah Goldberg.com.
1: Yep. Some of these uh, <coughs> survey results, I'm only privy to... I, I'm not privy to them, but the the Nash Review podcast overseer uh, sends me screenshots of uh, results that favor this podcast. So I listeners have gotten the... Uh, message that they should try to hack the survey in our favor. So, thank you.
0: Yes. Well, no, no. It's just that if you're enthusiastic about this podcast, you should make yourself heard. And if you're not enthusiastic about this podcast, you should go about your life. You got better things to do.
1: Yeah. Uh, And people who listen to this podcast, despite not being enthusiastic about it, remind me of the people in surveys who say that they are religious but not spiritual. Instead of spiritual but not religious, I want to meet these people. <laughs> <laughs> I want to – people who just are in it for the ritual.
0: Um, and, uh, oh, I had lunch with Scott Emmergut, who's the – as we mentioned earlier, the head honcho for um, Ricochet, where I'm on another podcast, Galop, And uh, we had lunch in Santa Barbara at this place, La Super Rica, which is awesome. Highly recommend anybody who um, has a chance. Um it's it's real old-school, no-frills, uh, Mexican kind of taco place. It's really fantastic. And um, and Scott said nice things about Jack, but we don't need to dwell on that. And um, we?
1: It's bad for my ego.
0: But that's where you can find your podcast, The Young Americans. hmm Yes. So I was trying to work towards
1: that. Okay. Um, just be careful. Don't inflate my ego too much.
0: Yeah, that's about it. And um, uh, just in terms of canine update, I haven't seen them since I've been back, but uh, we had a – uh, our friend f- from American Enterprises, Matt um, Matt Winesett.
1: Um, oh wow! Okay, this is his first remnant mention. I
0: know. Oh, I figured it's the least I can do. And uh, I mean, I did pay him American currency too. But yeah. um, uh, he dog sat because my wife and daughter were out of town while I was out in California, and
1: and because I already agreed to do it for someone else. Yes.
0: And so uh, he, by all accounts, did 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 well, and. It was a little heartbreaking that the, I always, as you know, I always ask for proof of life pictures to make sure that everything's going okay. hmm And uh, the first picture he sent was of Pippa, the English Springer Spaniel, just curled up in his lap sleeping. Yeah. And it really was kind of like, you know, it felt a little bit, there was a sting of betrayal to it. <laughs> she is a little bit of a hoe. Um, she is a cheap date. Yeah. Um, um,
1: but we love her for it.
0: Um and uh, other than that, uh, check out our Twitter feed at, at Jonah Remnant. And you can send email to the Remnant Pod at Gmail. And please, please review us on iTunes and Stitcher or Google Play, all those kinds of places. I noticed last week that briefly. Uh, the editor's podcast was just one notch below us on the rankings on iTunes. Which Wow,
1: that's frightening.
0: It's terrifying. And uh, that it really cannot become a regular thing. As much as I wish them success, we have to have a rising tide lifting all boats, and my boat has to always go higher than
1: theirs. <laughs>
0: um, and uh, thanks again for listening. We will have real guests on soon enough. I apologize if this was all rambly and incoherent, but I am bone tired. I actually feel like I'm on a vision quest, and I think I actually see a naked Indian walking into the studio. So with that, <laughs> thanks for listening, and uh, I'll see you next time.
1: No, you won't. This is a podcast. Do you want me to (laughs) splash cold water on your face? No, I already did that. Okay. Do you want me to slap you? Do you want me to give you an adrenaline injection?
0: uh, No, but this is gold. Gold, I tell you.